0: All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 7. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So if you find Proverbs just past that, we've been there for a while now. Ecclesiastes 7, looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. The philosophy of a better way. The philosophy of a better way. Last week, uh, we were looking at the mindset of the better way in verses 1 through 6. This week, the philosophy of a better way. You know, when we dig down to the heart of the message in Ecclesiastes, it is essentially an emotional message, isn't it? And what I, I don't mean by that that it is driven by emotion, but rather it is considering Emotion. It is, it is considering the emotional elements of our lives. Solomon warns against and encourages towards certain thoughts and actions based upon the standard of lasting satisfaction. He is a man who has tried everything and has not felt satisfied and he says there's only one thing that truly Satisfies, and I know that many of you have seen that in your own lives. I know that you've seen the satisfaction, you've experienced the satisfaction that comes from serving the Lord. Maybe it's when you've witnessed to a friend. That's the time where it's most evident to me is when I've had a great opportunity to witness to someone, and I've, 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 it's, it's like I'm, I'm sitting there witnessing it as I'm doing it, witnessing the Holy Spirit use me. The verses are coming to mind. The things need, that that need to be said are being said. Uh, there's clarity. Uh, it's, it's almost like you're. You're on a roll, right? And you're, you're being used by God and then you get done with that and you're, you're finished with that and they leave or whatever the case may be and you're just filled. You're filled and you're excited and you're, you're, you're contented and you say, wow, this is better. This is better than anything. This is better than when I get that new bike. This is better than when I get that new toy. This is better than when I get that new thing. This is better than when I've had a good meal. This is the most, the most exciting, blessed feeling. This is contentment, this is satisfaction, satisfaction in Christ alone. And so Solomon has been talking about this, and he's spoken of all of the other satisfactions. He's seen terrible evils, he's seen common evils, uh, what he calls the evil disease of self. And they've led him to sorrow and anxiety and depression and confusion, to fatalism. Last week, though, we, we began a journey through the better way. The mindset of the better way. And remember how we described the mindset of the better way. It was a way that is dead to self. Living for the day of our death rather than for the days of our lives. Living for the day in which we will die and we will transition to our heavenly home. And then everything that we've been investing is there stored up and gaining interest and waiting for us to enjoy. It is better for us if we will receive it to live for the day of our death than for the things of this life. Now, this week we speak of the philosophy and we'll have several other better way sermons in the weeks and months to come. But Solomon's going to consider today some thoughts, some some dispositions of our heart that are going to define or threaten This better way. And as we pick up in verse 7, Solomon says this, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Remember last time we were together, we ended with Solomon speaking about the rebuke of a wise man being better than the song of fools. And Solomon used that, that interesting illustration of the crackling of thorns under a pot, right? And he said that the, the idea with this is that though laughter is a good thing, we all love to hear laughter. We all enjoy laughing together. It's far better. Uh, we, we, we far more look forward to a day when we're all laughing together than a day when we're all crying together, right? Right? And yet for all of that, he says the laughter of fools, when it's useless, silly laughter, when it is it, when, when we are laughing in the face of, of times where we should be mourning, when we are taking uh, making light of that which is serious, when we are ignoring that which matters in order to simply spend our time in laughter, in amusement, in, in that which does not profit. He says it's like the, the crackling of a fire. It sounds good. But what is making it sound good is actually the process of destruction, right? When you light a fire, that crackling of a fire is a beautiful sound. But what you're actually hearing is the fire consuming the wood. It's it's, it's a process of destruction that is creating that sound. Now, Solomon uh, continues his thoughts on dangers as he teaches about this better way. And he says in verse 7 that there's a danger... And that danger is of the wise oppressor. The wise oppressor. Uh, For this we need to build a little bit of context. Remember that most everything that Solomon is writing about in Ecclesiastes, as far as we understand it, is coming from his own experiences, right? This is him thinking back on his days of rebellion, on the many years that he lived in rebellion, and he's thinking back on them with regret. Because he says, I sought for that which satisfied, I tried it all, and none of it worked. So... Solomon, we know, was one of the wisest men who ever lived. And he was one of the wisest men who ever lived by direct reason of God's blessing. Do you recall the story? David, his father, dies. And God speaks to Solomon and says, ask me for anything. Ask me for anything and I will give it to you. And so Solomon says, I need wisdom to to guide this people. I, I, I do not have the wisdom to guide God's people. And God was very pleased with this. He was very pleased because he, he would have expected and typically a man would ask for, well, God, give me riches. God, give me power. God, give me success. And God says, you didn't ask for any of those things. You asked for a spiritual thing. You asked for wisdom. And he says, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom. And not only that, but I'm going to give you riches and honor and success and peace as well. So Solomon has all of this now. He has wisdom. He has honor. He has riches. He has success. He has peace. Uh, in, in one sense, by the end of Ecclesiastes we 'll understand that Solomon may have seen those things as a little bit of a curse to him, but in First Kings chapter eleven, verses three and four, we read this about Solomon, and he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. for it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon multiplied unto himself wives. And those wives, many being from pagan lands, turned his heart toward those pagan gods. So he began to worship pagan gods. He began to to worship the false gods in the groves. He began to erect altars, to false gods. His wives turned away his heart from the true and living God. But, you know, what's interesting about this is that Solomon did not lose his wisdom. Now, wisdom is, is um, truth in action. And so, in one sense, we can say he was no longer a man of wisdom, but he still had understanding. He still had the wisdom. He still understood God. Uh, he was what we might call today a carnal Christian. Now, that's bringing it into the terms of Christ, right? That's bringing it into the terms uh, of, of the New Testament. But he was a carnal follower of God. He still knew the Lord. He still knew what was right. But he had chosen. To walk away from those things. Uh, he was a, a wise man living in sin. And because of this, we find that Solomon, because he was the leader of, of the nation of Israel, but he had fallen into sin, it also changed the way that he led the nation. We learn in 1 Kings 12 that Solomon was a harsh taskmaster. He was a hard leader. He heavily taxed the people and he demanded a large labor force as well. That makes sense, right? He was a man of, of, of building, right? He did a lot of building projects. He, he, he spent a great deal of time building up the nation of Israel. He built walled cities. He built monuments under his name. He built all of these things. And he needed somebody to do all of this work. Uh, so he used his people. And he taxed the people in order to get the money to do so. So for all that the kingdom was glorious and for all that the kingdom was strong, the people were quite oppressed in one sense by their king. Consider the appeal that the people made to to Solomon's son. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. And at this time the nation is still together, but it's about to be divided. And it gets divided because of Rehoboam's response to the request in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, They sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, who was the king, saying, Thy father, that would be Solomon... Made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father, and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. So the people came to Saul or to Rehoboam and said, "Look, your father put a heavy yoke on us. He was an oppressive king." For all that we were at peace, and there's a lot of money in the land and all of this. He taxed us heavily. He worked us heavily. He was an oppressive king. Make our yoke lighter. Make our burden lighter, and we will serve you. So Rehoboam then decides to ask some folks counsel. So he goes to those who had lived in Solomon's day, the, the counselors of his father. And he says, what do you think I should do? And the counselors of his father says, you know what? They're right. They're right, Solomon taxed them heavily, he burdened them heavily, uh, he worked them heavily, and if you want to keep these people loyal to you, you need to lighten the burden. And Rehoboam said, okay, thank you for your help, and then he went to his peers. He went to the people his own age, who grew up with him with the silver spoon. And he said, what do you all think? And they said, uh-uh-uh, no, you need to double down. You need to double down on them. You need to say it's going to get worse for you now because you've requested it. I'm going to make it worse for you. The same thing that Pharaoh did, right, to the, to the nation of Israel when, Mo, uh, when Moses came and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, okay, I see you have idle time. I'm going to make it worse on you. So Rehoboam then listened to his peers rather than listening to the elder counselors. And after Rehoboam said, I'm going to make it worse on you, the Bible says Jeroboam took the ten tribes of Israel and they seceded from Judah and Benjamin and there created a dual monarchy a divided nation because of Rehoboam's decision so these complaints were not unfounded they were not unfounded Solomon did he was an oppressive king though he was a man who started out so well now with that in mind with that understanding in mind of Solomon and of the kind of king he was particularly in his latter days Consider verse 7. Solomon writes, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Solomon was a man of great wisdom, who had descended on behalf of his own ambition into the oppression of his people. Make no mistake, by and large the people were prosperous. I've mentioned this. This was not oppression of murder and violence. There was a time of peace. But the people were oppressed through taxation and through labor. A couple of weeks ago, we considered this verse, Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Even if you're a fool, if you keep your mouth shut, people won't know you're a fool. It's when you open your mouth that people are going to figure out you're a fool. So if you're a fool, just keep your mouth shut. And people will probably count you wise. Right? There are those people that just don't say anything, and they sit and they just listen all day. And people say, yeah, he's really smart. When you've never said anything. You just kept your mouth shut. And you didn't confirm what people may have thought of you. So when when a fool keeps his mouth shut, he doesn't confirm his own foolishness and he might be counted wise. What Solomon is saying in verse 7 is that even a wise man, when he uses his abilities and his resources to oppress others is to be counted a man that has forsaken wisdom and has descended into unrestrained passion. The definition of madness. Even a wise man, a man that truly does understand things, descends into madness when he oppresses others. Solomon then links this madness of oppression to another evil. And that evil is the corrupting influence of gifts. It's possible that these two concepts were linked in Solomon's life because of circumstances, just as they were linked uh, in in the text grammatically. It's possible that Solomon uh, linked the oppression that he descended into with gifts that were given to him. Perhaps the gifts of some of the wives, right? So Solomon being an incredibly powerful man, having a kingdom that was unrivaled in, in the world at the time, uh, many of the kings around him would give him their daughters, give him women in order to create alliances with the kingdom, right? So maybe Solomon was thinking of those gifts, or maybe he was thinking of other gifts uh, that kings had given to him, rare antiquities, and, and it, it initiated Solomon's lust, his desire for things, it's only assumption, but, but the, the principles, um, would it would make sense that Solomon is going to link the two. The principle, however, of a gift destroying the heart is one that is regularly found in Scripture. When God was instructing the nation of Israel on justice in the land in Exodus, he told them this in Exodus 23, verses 7 and 8. Keep thee far from a false matter. Stay far away from false matters. And the innocent and the righteous slay thou not. For I will not justify the wicked. And thou shalt take no gift. For the, for the gift blindeth the wise. And perverteth the words of, right, of the righteous. God is speaking specifically to the judges here. To those who would judge the land. And he says this. Don't ever... Get involved with false matters. Don't ever pervert justice for any reason. Don't ever allow the righteous and the innocent to suffer simply because of politics or simply because of circumstances. Don't go there because I will not justify the wicked, even if you try. And then he says this. Don't take gifts because gifts blind the wise. They pervert the words of righteousness Certain positions of authority should not accept gifts because those gifts can cause the heart to be blinded, can cause the perspective to be skewed. Even subconsciously. We'll talk about this. The same exhortations given in Deuteronomy 16:19. Thou shalt not rest judgment wrestle it that means or take it away. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of righteousness. We've all seen this play out in our lives, right? It happens in families. When a family member gives a gift or does a favor to you, then the time comes when a family member wants you to do something for them that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise do or that you don't want to do. But you feel compelled to do it because they've been good to you in the past. Well, they've they've done this for me, so I feel compelled to do this for them. I don't want to do it, but I feel compelled to do it. Uh, this, this, This kind of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of mentality. It's not to say that that's always a wrong thing. It's not always a wrong thing. It's not a wrong thing to say, well, because someone has done something for me, I want to do something back. But can you see how in certain positions, that's a problem. Can you see how in certain positions of authority, a person ought not be positioning themselves to even subconsciously feel like they owe favors to anyone. The, the general positions that we would think of as far as this would be concerned would be politicians, church leaders, perhaps business leaders, certainly judges. Right? Now, unfortunately, our politics, that's all our politics is today, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'm going to give you this money and you're going to do this for me. But this is one of those things that God says you ought not do because it perverts justice. You cannot get what is best for the people and you can't pursue what is best for the people that you represent because you're too busy trying to represent the people who have given you money. The people who are funding you. This is a perversion of righteousness. This is a perversion of justice. This is a perversion of principle. This is a perversion of truth. Judges, it's the same way. Don't take gifts. Then, because what happens when you have to judge the person that gave you that gift? Church leaders can be the same way. What happens when you have to exercise church discipline on that person who gives half the income? To the church. What happens if you have to, now, now obviously that doesn't mean don't, don't give to the church. What it means is we have to keep a distance. There has to be a loyalty to truth. And if I begin taking personal gifts, if I begin taking personal handouts, if I begin taking these things and, and people lavish upon me goods, then what happens on the day I have to correct them? Am I subconsciously going to be able to do that? Or am I going to give them a pass because I'm afraid to lose them or because I feel like I owe them? In all these circumstances, we must be careful. But in certain positions of authority, gifts just need to be off limits. Because even if in many of the contexts above, it starts out in a right context, even if the gift is not intended to be a bribe, those gifts can confuse justice. Now with some, with some of these decisions, with some of these ideas, with some of these gifts, of course, they, be, they, they, they give way into bribes. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 6 says this, Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend of him, to him that giveth gifts, right? So the idea being that the man of wealth, the man of means, the man of influence, everybody is going to be his friend. If you if 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 you choose to buy your friends, you're going to have friends. If you want people to do what you want, if you want to be able to influence them, give them gifts. Something in the heart of a man is bent toward those who have been good to them. So that they feel an obligation to give back, even in immoral ways. Now again, this is not always a wrong thing. We're not always talking about something that is actually immoral, or something that is actually unethical. And it's not to say that gifts should never be given. It's simply to say that we need to be careful that either in giving gifts or receiving gifts, we are not positioning ourselves, subconsciously or otherwise, to lose sight of this. And this is what Solomon is saying here in verse 7. That a gift destroyeth the heart. We continue in verse 8. Solomon says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Moving away from justice and honesty, Solomon then considers patience. Remember, this is the philosophy of the better way. The philosophy of the better way says don't oppress, right? He's talking about how evil oppression is and how it's all over. We saw that in chapters 3 and chapters 4. He says, okay, the better way is don't don't be a part of that. Don't be a part of bribery. Don't be a part of injustice. Don't be a part of unrighteousness. Don't be a part of impatience, of pride. Solomon gives a proverbial thought here which is extremely difficult to remember, but if you can get a handle on it, it will be such a blessing to you that the end of a thing is better than the beginning. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. If you can remember that, it will be such a blessing to you. And by this, Solomon means be patient. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now we've all done it before, right? We've become impatient. We think we need immediate results. We forget long-term goals. And then we make a decision that we regret. Because we we gave up something long-term, a a long-term good, on the altar of some short-term Thing that we wanted We're tempted to want to get to the finish line But not put in the effort to get there A great secular example of this Will present itself as we get Into um, the football season That's coming up Every year there's at least one football team Who gets themselves into a bind for one reason or another And they're not quite where they want to be And so they will mortgage the farm right? They will They will put everything on the line To get a player For this season and they'll they'll mortgage their future, they'll give up draft picks, they'll do all of that in order to get somebody for this season, in order to make a difference today. And the amount of times where you see that pan out is significantly fewer than the, t- the amount of times that it, it does. The idea there is that they're, they're exchanging some long-term profitability for some short-term gain. Solomon says, look, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. But let's get personal. Let's bring it personal. I give you a secular example, but personally speaking, in our own spiritual lives, we do this too, don't we? We want to be a mature Christian who loves the Lord, who does what's right, who's, who, who is who is stable. But the process of becoming a mature Christian demands patience, effort, care, Determination. Obedience. This is difficult. It takes time. But there is a way to bypass it. Did you know that? What you can do is you can start looking like a good Christian on the outside while not actually working on your heart. You can pretend you can put up all of the shiny veneer. You can get dressed up on a Sunday and you can come and people can say, how are you? And you can say, oh, I'm doing great and everything's well and, and everything's fine. Do you have anything I can pray for you? No, no, no. Spiritually we're fine. There's nothing wrong and uh, are, are you dealing with anything right now that we can help you bear that burden? No, no, no. Do you need accountability? No, 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 no. I'm fine. Everything's good. And you can put up this veneer. And so everybody thinks that you're doing well and, and, and you, you're, You're godly and you're everything that you need to be And you're this mature Christian When really in in your heart you're a mess And you haven't dealt with any of it And there's pride and there's self-righteousness And there's anger and there's hypocrisy Which is what it all is, right? It boils down to hypocrisy So I sacrifice the blessing of true spiritual maturity Because I don't want to go through the effort of spiritual maturity I don't want to go through the humility of spiritual maturity. I don't want to go through the process of having to humble myself before God and others. And I choose pride over patience. And I suffer for it. And my marriage may suffer for it. And my family may suffer for it. My church may suffer for it. It happens in churches also, right? In a physical sense. Church growth. A church is a long-term thing. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Churches might plateau, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but in our megachurch culture, a culture where we feel like if we're not growing, we're dying. Whether we say it or not, many pastors feel that pressure. And if we're not careful, we'll say, okay, there's a long-term vision, but I'm going to compromise that long-term vision, even the long-term conviction and principles, for the satisfaction of immediate growth. We choose pride over patience, and the truth suffers for it. Solomon says the better way is a way of patience. The better way always keeps in mind the desired end and it maintains a constant commitment to the principles that will bring about that end. This is how you have to raise your children, right parents? You can't just be raising your children in such a way that every day you're putting out the brush fires. And then you're just hoping for the best. You see a long term goal. This is what I want my child to become. I want my child to become honest and to have integrity and to love truth and to love God and to have a heart for service and to see a desire for for spiritual things. I want my children to be uh, hard workers. I want my children to be these things. And I can't just make them that, can I? I have to see the long-term goal. I have to keep that goal in mind. And then I have to work today taking baby steps every day to bring them to that goal. When I see them veer, I have to correct the course. It's not just going to happen, right? In, in, in whatever uh, context of our lives we want to talk about, things, good things, righteous things, godly things don't just happen. They take direction. They take thought. We have to think about the end. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. The difference is really between a marathon and a sprint. In a sprint, you put all of your effort, you put all of your energy into this one push. A few seconds, typically, is all that sprints are. A few seconds of pushing, putting all of your power into it for a short distance. But in a marathon, a runner must first Consider the distance. He must pace himself. He must use his energy sparingly so that he has enough energy to get over the finish line at the end of the 26 plus miles that he's been asked to run. If you push too hard too fast, you'll not be able to sustain the race. Life live for God. Whether we're talking about raising children, whether we're talking about a church, whether we're talking about an individual life, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's a life which considers the end above the demands of the moment. It's a life that says, how will my end be more than how will this moment be? And that's exactly what Solomon was talking about last week, right? It's exactly what he was speaking about when he's talking about living for the day of your death. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. Better is the end, because at the end, if you get to that place and you've met your goal, far better than trying to cut corners along the way and sacrificing everything that matters. We'll come back to this more in our application. Let's continue. Verse 9, he says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. In many ways, Solomon's admonition in verse 9 is an extension of the concept in verse 8. Solomon spoke of the end being better than the beginning. He speaks of a spirit of patience being better than a spirit of pride. And this virtue of patience is very closely related to the warning that we not be hasty in anger. A man or a woman who is quick to anger is a man or a woman who judges circumstances prematurely. He is imposing judgments before the facts come in And then he lacks control over his own spirit to contain his emotions. Anger is an emotion which is given to men by God. So it has a virtuous outlet. But hasty anger is a lack of self-control. And we know that this has to be the opposite of the better way, right? Because the better way is a way that denies self. Hasty anger is a lack of self-control, which means you are indulging self. You are allowing yourself to get away from you. Which cannot be the better way. And by the way, we would do a disservice if we do not make it clear that haste unto anger is also the very opposite of God's character. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Psalm 145 verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. So we see the character of God, that He is slow to anger. I dare say that there's not a man or a woman in this room who has not been the beneficiary of God's slowness to wrath. The fact that God is slow to anger has been a blessing to each one of us because we all need it. And if God's character has benefited us so greatly in this regard, how much should we seek to give others that same benefit? And let's also consider the warnings of the Proverbs in this regard. Proverbs 15, 18. A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeases strife. You want to keep situations from getting out of hand? Be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. Proverbs 1632, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Far better to be a meek man or woman, one who is slow to anger, one whose strength is under control, one who is willing to slow down and listen and consider than even to be a mighty person that can take a great city. You know, Oftentimes the history books speak of greatness in terms of power. The greatness of a Charlemagne, the greatness of a Napoleon, the greatness of an Alexander the Great, right? The greatness of a Nebuchadnezzar. But when the scriptures speak of greatness It speaks in terms of the greatness of The meekest man, Moses The greatness of the meek man, Daniel The greatness of a Joshua The greatness of of one who is like Christ The better way is a way of self-control Anger leads to arguments But a man or woman of self-control will appease strife through patience and through peace. And notice the strong words that Solomon uses about anger. He says, Anger resteth in the bosoms of fools. The concept of the fool in the Bible is not one which you want to be associated with. We aren't going to do a study on the fool today. We don't have enough time to do a study on the fool today. But the bosom being the place, the chest, where the heart resides, where, where things are, where where our, where our um person is, it's where we reside fools are the ones who get hasty to be angry and let us be careful not to be among them verse 10, say not thou what is the cause that the former days were better than these, for thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this We learn about the better way, and we might perhaps see that they all come down to a mature, deliberate, and thoughtful perspective. Verse 7, a thoughtful man will not oppress. A thoughtful man will not take gifts that would cloud his judgment. A thoughtful man will be patient to see the long-term... A macro perspective we might say Instead of a micro perspective Rather than just living in the moment Uh, In verse 9 A thoughtful man will not be hasty unto anger Verse 10 A thoughtful man will not attempt To compare his present circumstances To his former circumstances In order to dictate his feelings there's something in humans thats uh, that, that we're prone to do, and it's for us, we often do this, we often think back upon former days and say, man, those were the days, right? The good old days, always the good old days. And one of the dangers of this is that it threatens our current contentment. Now, it's not a problem to think back upon days with fond memories, but it is a problem when we compare days and we become less content in where God has us today because we're so busy thinking of where we were another day. It's fine to have those memories, but don't allow those memories to threaten your contentment. Now, one might ask, Pastor... Of all the things you need to be saying to us on a Sunday morning from the pulpit, do you really need to be telling us not to live in the past? Well, first of all, it's in the Bible, so yes. But secondly, I think that we do need this. I think that we all need this. Because God has called us. He has commanded us to be content. He has commanded us to live lives of contentment. And dwelling in the past is a sure way to thwart our ability to do so. And let's gain more perspective on this before we move on, shall we? Have you ever noticed how our memories never actually really live up to the reality? Have you ever noticed how our memories tend to cloud events so that they seem oftentimes better than they really were? I've given this example uh, not, not too long ago, I guess, but uh, about three years ago, my son was born, just over three years ago now. Now, my memory of that event is a pleasant memory. It's a pleasant memory, and it's a pleasant memory because all's well that ends well. But the day itself actually wasn't a very good day. I was deathly ill. My wife was deathly ill. We didn't realize that she was having contractions because we were both throwing up and she thought that she was just dealing with stomach bug and she didn't even know that they were contractions and by the time we knew that they were contractions, it was too late to call the midwife so she's on her way. The baby's coming. I deliver the baby. I can hardly even stand up. I'm so sick. I'm delivering my baby boy. I deliver the baby boy. I give give him to my wife and I say, I'm going to go lie down again because I can hardly stand and I'm about to fall over. That was the day. It wasn't a very good day and then the days got worse. The next day I started declining even more and I was probably only a couple hours from the emergency room when things finally started getting better and I began to recover it was was not a good time (laughs) but my son was born he was healthy, we're all well so as I think back on the memory, I smile right, I smile, I wasn't smiling on that day but I'm smiling now because memory has a way of doing this, doesn't it? It has a way of playing tricks on us. It has a way of of, of of causing us to think about things in a light that is perhaps better than the way things actually were. We romanticize things. And so how foolish is it then? for me to become more discontent in my circumstances today because of yesterday how foolish is it for me to say oh things were so much better then so I'm not happy with today and in doing so because memory is notoriously unreliable what I'm doing is I'm threatening my contentment I'm threatening my ability to live in the contentment that God has called me to live in in today's circumstances on the basis of that unreliable memory So Solomon concludes in verses 11 and 12, and then we'll apply. He says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but the excellency of the knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So Solomon has spoken much in the book about riches, wealth, honor, earthly fame. But Solomon says that this inheritance is only as good as the wisdom that is behind it. The things in this life which we would call good only really bring good when they are coupled with wisdom. All of Solomon's money and fame and honor when he coupled it with foolishness brought about nothing but pain. It only worked toward that which was good and satisfying and enjoyable when he coupled it with true wisdom. Now we might often look at the wealthy in this world and say imagine what we could do with that wealth. Imagine what God could do with that wealth if it were submitted to God. And that's the kind of idea here. There is profit. Imagine what God could do if it were submitted to God. But it must be submitted to God. Solomon says wisdom is good with an inheritance. The inheritance is a blessing as it comes with wisdom. And then Solomon compares the two. He says, but if you can only have one, well, wisdom is a defense and money is a defense. Wisdom can do good things for you. Money can do good things for you, but if I have to choose one or the other, here's the thing. Money can't give life and wisdom can I'd take wisdom any day, Solomon says. If I could just choose one, I'd take wisdom any day. I'd take obedience any day. Proverbs verse 8, chapter 8, verse 11, excuse me. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Proverbs 16, 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? Job said this in Job 28, verses 15 to 19. Speaking of wisdom, it cannot be gotten for gold. you can't buy it. Neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it. And the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of pearls, or of the pri- for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia shall, shall not equal it, neither shall it be valued with pure gold. The better way is a way of wisdom. You can't buy it, and it's worth so much more than money. Young people, can you grasp this? Wisdom. And by the way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Wisdom is so much more valuable to you than money. Wisdom is so much more important than the things of this life. Gain wisdom. And we know that God is wisdom. So Solomon would write in Proverbs 4, verses 5 through 9, Get wisdom. Get understanding, forget it not Neither decline from the words of my mouth Forsake her not, that's wisdom And she shall preserve thee Love her and she shall keep thee Wisdom is the principal thing Therefore get wisdom And with all thy getting Get understanding Exalt her and she shall promote thee She shall bring to thee honor When thou dost embrace her She shall give to thine head An ornament of grace A crown of glory Shall she deliver to thee Can you trust that? Let's apply this morning. As we walk through these verses, the better way, the the, the philosophy of the better way, the mindset of the better way was death to self. The philosophy of the better way is a philosophy of wisdom. The better way is a way of principle. Solomon said, oppression makes a wise man mad and gifts destroy the heart. Both of these concepts had to do with this overriding idea that When we lead, we need to be principled in our leadership. The common evil, the evil disease, is the disease of self. A call to the better way is a call unto selflessness. And in leadership, this means holding our principles. Now in this room are many types of leaders. In this room we have fathers. We have mothers. We have sisters and brothers who who are given positions or or some degree of leadership. Uh, We have employers, we have bosses, we have pastor, a pastor, we have church leaders. The call of Solomon in the concept of leadership is a call unto being a principled leader. Are you a principled leader? Many flaws can be overlooked in a leader as long as that leader is a person of principle because there are moorings by which they are bound, by which they operate. But when we leave principle, when we lack principle, then we become inconsistent, unpredictable. We are susceptible to becoming unjust to allow others to operate in injustice freely. You know, we don't always get to choose our leaders, and it is unfortunate that there are only a small handful of principled leaders in the level of government today. But let that frustration, the frustration that you feel over the lack of principle in leadership today when we see our government, let that roll over into how you father or mother. Let that roll over into how you lead the church. As a leader in the church, men, let that roll over into how we lead our businesses, that if you're so frustrated when you can't peg a person because they have no principles and you wonder if today is going to be a good day or a bad day for them, how is it for you? Are you a man or a woman of principle? Do your loyalties rest in situations called situational ethics or do they rest upon truths that guide you? James 1 verse 8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A man that tries to hold two minds, that tries to hold two philosophies, that goes one way, then the other way, that has no string of principled leadership or of principled action is untrustworthy and unstable. Can be driven one way or the other. And this is one, way, one reason, by the way, that it's important to know what you believe. It's important not just not just to know what you believe, but why you believe it. Because if you know what you believe and you know why you believe it, then when the winds come and blow and you are being asked to take a stand one way or another, am I going to do this or not do this? And that tug is strong. That tug to to, to go in other directions away from the word of God is strong. On that day, you'll stand if you have commitment to the principles of God's word. If you know what you believe and why. On that day, you will falter if your foundation is not strong. The better way is a way of principle. Number two, the better way is a way of patience. Solomon spoke that the end of a thing is better than the beginning in verse eight. Patient spirit being better than a proud spirit. Are you a patient person? Are you patient with others? Are you patient with circumstances? You know, this gets easier as you get older. It's harder when you're younger to be patient. But are you a patient person? There are many in this world of ours who hold their impulses as a badge of honor, don't they? Well, I just say the first thing that comes to mind. Well, I just jump out and do it. I don't, I don't think, I just do they make broad assumptions and then come to conclusions before they have all the facts and then they act on those facts. And they're oftentimes proud of this. They, they wear it as a badge of honor. May, may I tell you it's not a badge of honor. They may laugh and they may say, oh, I'm just one of those people. I'm just impulsive. I just wear myself out of my sleeves. I just I just do. I don't think. But that's not a badge of honor. That's actually foolishness. That actually shows tremendous immaturity. The better way is a way of patience. The better way is the person that considers the end, not just the beginning. The impulsive man will say what's on his mind. The wise man will consider what the results of those words might be and then choose them carefully. The impulsive man will buy without another thought. The wise man will consider the end result of that purchase and will temper his indulgence. The impulsive man will make a decision which will benefit him at that moment of time. The wise man will consider the end of those decisions and determine whether or not this course of action will actually be better in the long run. We gave a couple of of examples of this in our exposition. We talked about church growth. Uh, We talked about our own spiritual maturity. And again, it comes back to living a principled life. It even goes back to what Solomon said last week. Do we live for today alone or do we live for the day of our death? Do we see each decision as a little sprint where I'm just going to run and then I'm going to tire myself out and then I'm just going to be done? Or do I see every decision as a chain along the path of glorifying God? Are you seeing every decision you make, every word that comes out of your mouth, everything that you put before your eyes, everything that you put before your ears, everything that you buy, everywhere that you go, everything that you think? Are you seeing it as one more step toward or away from God as it really is? As the Bible says, am I going toward God or am I going away from God? Am I serving God or am I serving self? Do you see that or is it just, well, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm just living for the moment. I'm just making, I'm on the cuff. I don't, I don't really have a direction. I don't really have a purpose. I'm just making decisions and I'm doing what I think is best at the moment. That's unwise are you impulsive are you hasty do you find yourself making wrong decisions getting yourself into tough situations because you don't think before you act or because you don't think before you speak don't just laugh at that and say yeah I really got myself into a bad scrape this time because I said that or because I did that recognize that that's a failing that's a flaw and work to change it Solomon says the better way is a way of patience to see the end of any given interaction as more important than the beginning. Do a little exercise this week. Before you speak to people, play out how that conversation, how you expect that conversation to go in your head. Consider the end of that conversation. Will you make them angry? Will you discourage them? Will you confuse them? Is this something they need to hear? Is this the right time? Play it out before you want to tell somebody they're doing something wrong or before you want to tell somebody that they're doing something right before you want to ask a person why they did something a certain way before you want to ask a person to go do something play out the conversation see how you think it's going to go see how it actually goes when you do it if you still go forward with it there are a hundred little ways that patience and thoughtfulness can lead us to better satisfaction if only we'll slow down to consider them the end of a thing is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Which are you? Number three. First, the better way is a way of principle. And second, the better way is a way of patience. Third, the better way is a way of peace. Now this is the big one. Because as I've experienced it, anger is a major pet sin in Christians' lives. A lot of Christians have a real problem with anger. Anger. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.9 Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry For anger resteth in the bosom of fools We read several verses in the scriptures Which warn us against anger But let me just say this If you're a person that's quick to anger You have a spiritual problem The Bible's warnings against interaction With angry people is quite strong Proverbs 21.19 It is better to dwell in the wilderness Than with a contentious and an angry woman Proverbs twenty two twenty four. 24 Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Here we see a warning against an angry woman and a warning against an angry man specifically. A person who is hasty to anger, Solomon says, is a foolish person. A person who is hasty to anger is a person who will cause emotional pain. Spouse. If you're a spouse who is quick to get angry, you need to get it under control. Confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to your spouse. Get it right. Get accountability if you need. Get counseling if you need. When, a, when God calls upon husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and God calls upon the wives to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ, look, there is no room for hasty anger there. There's no room for it in your relationship. Get it right. Parents, if you're a parent who is quick to get angry at your children, You need to get that under control. You need to confess it to God. You need to to, to confess it to your children. You need to get accountability if you need. You need to get counseling if you need. Whether it works itself out in physical violence or whether it's just emotional, children of an angry parent will face struggles that they should not have to bear. Consequently, young people, when you seek a spouse, make sure that your spouse is not an angry person. Women do not get into a relationship with an angry man, especially if he's quick to get angry. Well, he gets angry, but he always apologizes. It doesn't matter. He gets angry, but it was really my fault. I provoked him. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't do that. He gets angry, but he doesn't mean it. He gets angry, but he says it will be better later. You want to see the best in him. But the Bible says make no friendship with an angry man. If a man has anger issues, you need to see full proof of his repentance and correction before he's ever a second thought in your mind or heart. Men, do not get into a relationship with an angry woman. Young men, don't get into a relationship with an angry woman. Especially those that are quick to get angry. She will become a misery to you. Your home will become a battleground rather than a place of rest. You will not want to come home. This will distance you from your wife. This will distance you from your children. It will perhaps lead you into other sins of great sorrow and destruction. If a woman has anger issues, if she's contentious, if she's argumentative, if she's naggy, if she, if, if life is drama, stay away until that's changed. Until that's changed. Until there's repentance, until there's clarity that there has been correction. Let's regain focus. We've looked outward. Let's look inward. Are you an angry person? Now let me clarify one thing before we continue. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Here we are enlightened to the reality that there is such thing as righteous indignation. There is an anger that is right. God gave us anger. Right? He gave us this emotion. Which means it can be worked out in a positive and a virtuous way. We know that anger is given to us by God. And while it has been corrupted by the curse, if God gave it to us, this means that there's a righteous reason for it to exist. And that righteous reason is what we call righteous indignation. When we become angry over injustice and evil and wrong, over sin, over lawlessness... This is what happened when Moses saw the people on Mount Sinai and, and they were worshiping a golden calf and he got angry for the Lord. This is what happened when Nehemiah came back for, to Israel from Persia and he saw that Sanballat was living in the temple and he got angry for the Lord and after he threw Sanballat out of the temple and he plucked out beard hair and he did all of these things. He said, "Lord, remember me for my good." Why? Because this was righteous indignation working itself out in his life as he was zealous for the Lord. This is what what happened when Jesus overthrew the the, the tables of the money changers. But as I give you all of these examples, I do want to take note of something. First, righteous indignation never causes a person to operate outside of his God-given authority. May I tell you what that means? When Moses threw those tablets on the ground and then he melted that calf down and he made the people drink that bitter water, he had God's authority to do that. He did not step outside of God's authority to, to avenge. He was righteous and angry for God's sake. And he used only the authority that he had to mete out God's vindication. Nehemiah had the authority to cast out. Excuse me, it wasn't Ballad; it was Tobiah. To cast Tobiah out of the temple. He had the authority to do that. He was the governor in, in, uh, of Israel. He was the satrap. He could do that. Jesus had every authority to cast the money changers out of the temple because it was his father's house. Righteous indignation does not give us license to operate outside of God's authority. May I tell you what this means? We can be angry at child murder, at infanticide, also called abortion. We can be angry at that. It's not wrong to be angry over that, to seeing children murdered. But that does not give me the authority to kill them. To kill, to kill the killers. I don't have that authority. Do I? God has not given me that authority unless I am a part of the government of this land. And then I have the constraints of that government. God has given government the authority to take a life. God has not given me the authority to take a life. And so I can't go kill those who are killing these babies and say it's it's just my righteous indignation because in doing so I'm stepping outside of the authority that God has given me and trying to vindicate it I don't have that authority every man who worked out his righteous indignation in a physical way in the bible did so within the realm the context of the authority that they had be angry at wrong done against you by uh, uh, being angry at a wrong done against you by a brother or sister or parent or spouse does not give you the authority to wrong them back. Now, parents, you may have the authority to chasten, but not to wrong. And when you wrong them back, you've sinned in your anger. That is where sin has given place to uh, anger; has given place to sin. We're called to be angry, but sin not. Notice, we're also called not to let the sun go down on our anger. On our wrath. Don't allow your anger to fester. Don't allow your anger to fester. Festering anger can destroy you from the inside out. Don't keep it down. Don't hold it in. Oftentimes, and I'm one of these by the way. Confession hour. I'm one of these that likes to, when I get upset, I just kind of bury it. I bury it and I bury it and I bury it and I bury it. And then it makes things horrible between me and whoever I'm upset at. Because everything that they do, I feel like they're doing it to harm me, and they're thinking about it, and they woke up this morning ready to, you know, whatever it might be, and and it it affects my relationship with them on a daily basis, and then at some point it just, it boils over and it comes out. And it's so much worse. And then I have to confess, and I have to apologize, because it boiled over and it came out. Don't allow your anger to be that way. Don't allow it to, to fester inside of you. Don't just pack it down. If someone has angered you, get it out, confront it. Talk over it. Get it done. Don't bottle up your anger, spouse. Don't bottle up your anger, children. Don't bottle up your anger, parent. If there's something that's wrong, let's find the person that I've wronged or that's wronged me and let's get it done with. Let's get it out. Let's reconcile it or not, or or understand that you're not going to be able to reconcile it because of, of, of the other person and their choices. And then let's move on. Let's not carry those burdens with us. Be angry, Paul says and sin not let not the sun go down on your wrath get it taken care of don't go to bed angry at your sister don't go to bed angry at your brother don't go to bed angry at your mom or your dad don't go to bread, bed with festering anger inside of you deal with it and if you can't deal with it that night just deal with it as soon as you can hey call up, call up that person in the church who said that that hurt you and say hey can we just have a talk can we go out to lunch next week Call up that your pastor and say, hey, pastor, can can, can we talk this over? Let's reconcile this. Let's get it out. Don't let that anger eat you up from the inside out. James 1, verses 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Your anger is not going to work itself out in anything positive. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So get it done with. Don't hold it down. An emotional response to anger does not induce people to do what's right, does it? When you're hasty to anger, take a note. You'll end up doing things that are not pleasing to the Lord. The better way is the way of peace. No matter what context, politics, culture, religion, society, uh, family, Can you be this way? Can we be this way? We can. The Lord has made the provision if you're in Christ. So the question is, are you an angry person? Do you know how to deal with it, to release it, to give it to God? Are you hasty to anger? If so, let's change. Number four, the better way is a way of perspective. Verse 10, say not thou, what is the cause of the former days, that the former days were better than these? Don't be stuck in the past. Living in current discontentment because of what you perceived you don't have today that you perceive you once had. Be it physical beauty, abilities, athleticism. I used to be this, I used to be that, right? Person that says, oh, you know, back in the day, back in the day I was this, back in the day I was that. Back in the day I had this, back in the day I had that. Material things, money, job, situation, house, spiritual things, better church, better relationships, better routines, Don't be so busy stuck in what you had that you aren't thankful for what you have. Don't be so busy stuck in what you once had that you're not willing to do what's necessary today to make things better today. This is a threat to the better way because it's a part of the evil disease of self. You're so focused on yourself. And I know that there are many what if situations that we could cover here. Many scenarios where people have legitimate reasons that the past was better than the present. Okay, I'm not saying your past was not better than your present. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you live in the present. You can't do anything about the past. So if things need to change, let's change them today. And if they're not going to change, if the Lord would have you where He has you, then let's be content with what He's given you, with where He's put you. Wherever you were and wherever you are, partner with God to serve Him today and trust Him for tomorrow. And if we can do this, we found a better way. One final point as we close. Man can find lasting satisfaction. Lasting satisfaction comes through the better way. The narrow path that Jesus said that leads to life. But he said, few there be that find it. Upon this path, however, is the lasting satisfaction that we long for. And before I give you the satisfaction verse of the week, may I just ask you how you're doing in these things? Are you a principled person or are you walking in some level of injustice? Oppression blinded to the truths? Are you a patient person or a proud person? Are you peaceful or are you quick to anger? Do you have a perspective or are you stuck on yourself? May I encourage you, I'm about to read a verse, two verses from the Psalms, what David wrote. But may I encourage you that if you're struggling today with one of these things and the Holy Spirit has said, this is you, this is what you needed. Would you be that wise man? Would you be that wise woman who who responds to the Spirit of God? Would you be that person who realigns yourself with God's will so that He can then bless you as He's promised to do? I leave you with the words of David today. Psalm 84 verses 10 and 11 which tells us this. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. He's speaking to the Lord. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Excuse me. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Let's close in prayer.